you know, sometimes when you're working like on E.T., if you had any sense at all, you knew that it was going to be a special movie. It just, there was no question. And then when I was working on Braveheart, it was, of course, very difficult because so much of it was exterior, but you knew it was special. Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a film production junior working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film, TV and content professionals to help demystify and democratise the industries for juniors and fans alike. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest is Hollywood gaffer Gentleman Jim Planette. With over 100 movies to his name and 50 years in the business, Jim is a certified La La Land legend, having worked on Braveheart, E.T., Magnolia, The Ocean's Eleven trilogy, Traffic, Legends of the Fall, The Fisher King, Behind the Candelabra, and a single man to name but a few. If you pull the name of a Hollywood great out of a hat, Jim has probably worked with them, and it's a privilege to have him here on the show. How are you, Jim? Very good, thank you. Thank you very much. So to me as a Londoner, a gaffer means the boss. So for the uninitiated listeners, what is a gaffer in the film industry in your words? Well, that's, it's very interesting. Of course, you know the definition of gaffer, but nobody over here does, but I looked it up. <laughs> and it also means the old guy, which uh, I fall into that category. But a gaffer in the movie business is a person who supervises the lighting in collaboration with the director of photography. And uh, you work your way up from the bottom, and then when you feel that you can do it, you advanced to becoming a gaffer. And I've been doing it for 50 years. So I've done a lot of movies. Fantastic. And where does the line stand between yourself and the cinematographer? It varies. I think of it as a collaboration. I think, you know, as you're prepping and you're looking at locations and sets, talking about the look you want to have for the movie, which he has discussed with the director, then you come up with the ideas of, of how to light this this movie. To me, the whole business of making a movie is so complicated that no one person can do it. I don't agree with the auteur theory. That's just egomania. It's a collaboration between the director of photography and the production designer and the director and the gaffer, as far as the lighting goes. And then if you do that properly, you can move quite quickly through the script and through the the shoot. And that's what's important, you know. And if, if the director of photography is going to point to every light, then who's setting up the shot? Uh, oh, I'm going to do that later. Well, yeah, great. That's fine. But it will be forever. And what's fun about collaboration, because even the director and the editor collaborate, it's not all the editor who makes these decisions, nor is it all the director. And it's, you each have ideas about how to do it. And then after it's done, you don't even know whose idea it was because it's a little bit of this person and a little bit of that person. And together you make this wonderful uh, movie or whatever it is you're shooting. Fantastic definition. So to take it back, you were born into a movie making family as your father was legendary gaffer Homer Planet, <laughs> who among many moments lit the star making hair flip of Rita Hayworth. Did he ever share any stories of you with his experiences on set with people like Hayworth, Humphrey Bogart, Grace Kelly, Elvis Presley, etc.? Um, actually, my father started in business in 1919, and uh, he worked until 1969. So together, we have over 100 years of working in the movie business. Wow! And he loved to tell stories. And luckily, he, as he got older, he told them more than once. And so now I'm able to remember them. But uh, some of his great projects, one of them, you mentioned Rita Hayworth. My father did a movie called Cover Girl in 1943. 
with Rita Hayworth and Gene Kelly. And uh, they shot on three-strip Technicolor, which was like ASA 25 at the most, maybe 12. And so it required a tremendous amount of light. But if you look at that movie today, which I have, it is one of the best-looking musicals you've ever seen. There's a sequence in it called Alter Ego that Gene Kelly and the other choreographer on the movie, Stanley Donnan, came up with. It's Gene Kelly walking down a street, looking in a window and seeing his reflection. And then the reflection talks to him and they talk back and forth. And then eventually the reflection jumps out of the window and they dance together. And the director, Charles Vidor, said, that'll never work. I'm not going to do that. But Harry Cohen said, give it a try. And it's on YouTube, Alter Ego. And it's one of the most fantastic things you've ever seen. It would be today. But in 1943, it's almost unbelievable. So, and he did... The Diary of Anne Frank and High Noon and um, the greatest story ever told and it's he's had quite a he had quite a career. The one that stands out on his CV to me is It's a Wonderful Life. I hear that you perhaps attended the rap party as a child. Am I right? Well, they had a a, a rap picnic because it was such a family film, and not only did the crew come, but all their families came. And it was at a park in North Hollywood, and it was just a wonderful experience. And they had three-legged races and races. And I was not very athletic, but I ran in this race barefoot and came in third. And Jimmy Stewart gave me a dollar for coming in third. And he said, and you ran in your bare feet, you know. And then That's incredible. they got us all together for a group photograph. There was about 200 or 300 people. And I, I was six years old at this time, but I remember watching the camera on a tripod that must have been 10 feet high. And the photographer climbed up the ladder and started to turn a crank. And I saw the lens going across the group. And so it was like the first version of the wide lux camera. And Jimmy Stewart and Frank Capra were on the left side of the picture. And when they sensed the lens was off of them, they ran around behind. And so they're on both sides of the, of the image, which is just incredible. Wow, I'd love to see that picture. You were noticing cameras there straight away at a young age, but you then turned away to be a lawyer briefly. Was your dad disappointed by that, to follow that for a brief time? Well, actually, uh, when I was about 19 or 20 years old, I said to my dad, I think I'm going to get in the movie business. And he said, you don't want to do that. And I said, why not? He said, there's no security, which, of course, is true. And I said, well, you've done pretty well. And he said, yes, but some people don't. And so that's why I decided I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, one of my oldest friends was going to be a lawyer, and so I will too. And, uh, but then I took off a semester to earn some money, and the quickest way was in the movie business. And ah, more than 50 years later, I'm still here. So uh, it was almost accidental, but it was, I think, meant to be. It's just... Um, it's a it's a business that I just love and I'm still I'm 80 years old I'm still doing it but only because I still enjoy it you know it's still a challenge and uh, I still come up with with obstacles that I have not encountered before that I have to figure out and for me that's really that's what makes it fun that's fabulous to have such a, a love for it speaking of you moving into the business through your father and knowing being a Hollywood boy actually growing up Lots of our listeners want to get into the industry. For those who maybe weren't born into a Hollywood family, what would be your advice maybe for getting that first foot in the door? Well, it's, um, you know, it varies from place to place. I've worked with British crews a few times and I was quite amazed 
at how many of my crew had been to film school. Uh, in the United States, uh, a lot of people go to film school, but once you do and then you get into business, you realize that in the first week of being on a job, you learn more than you did in three years of film school. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, we have unions here which are quite strict, but um, when it gets busy, they hire people that aren't members of the union. And once you work for 30 days, then you can join the union. You know, and sometimes when you work on non-union projects, you meet union people and they help you to get jobs. And um, perseverance probably is the key. Do you think your demeanor, having been known as Gentleman Jim, has certainly helped you in your career? And also, I'd love to know how you, how you got that nickname. Do you remember who gave it to you? I do, actually. In the very beginning, I was doing a series of commercials with a director, cameraman, producer. And uh, the key grip was the president of the grip local. And uh, he used to wear a t-shirt that said grips is trash, <laughs> which uh, I thought was pretty funny. And, uh, but we finished about five days ahead of schedule. And so this producer, director, cameraman made a lot of money and he threw a wonderful rap party at his house in Malibu. And at that party, the key grip gave me a belt and carved in the belt was Gentleman Jim. And that was the first time anyone had called me that. And uh, it stuck. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful kind of nickname. I also used to be known as the Gucci Gaffer because I used to wear Gucci loafers to work all the time. <laughs> That's not quite as good as Gentleman Jim, but it's fun. I like a bit of both. Glamorous Gentleman Jim. There you go. So from what I could see from your IMDb and your CV, that you seem to go almost straight in as a gaffer without much time in the junior roles. Is that how it went or am I missing the hard graft in between? No, it, it, uh, it did go very quickly. And I, I, I look at guys today that, that work for seven or eight years before becoming a gaffer and I just, I don't know the difference. Um, I think certainly my name helped. Uh, it got me in the door. But it didn't keep the job, you know, it um, some recommendations and things can get you in the door, but you have to deliver if you want to stay in the room. Uh, but I, I started, um, you know, in the old days when we were shooting film, we would see the dailies at lunch. And no matter if I was the fifth electrician on a show, I would ask the gaffer or the DP, may I go to dailies? And they always said, of course. And so that enabled me to, to remember what I'd done on Wednesday. And then on Thursday at lunch, I could see it up on the screen and I could see what worked and what didn't work. And so I was really, and, you know, visiting my father on a set, I once asked him, how in the world do you know where to put all the lights? And he said, well, first you have to learn to look at light and see the reality of it and you know, when you're driving in a car, you see what the light does on people's faces or when you're in a room with sun coming through a window, and um, which was the best advice I've ever had. But, um, you know, working with people that were willing to share their knowledge with me, uh, I'm sure helped me advance quite quickly. And uh, my first job as a gaffer was with a DP named Richard Klein. And his MO was hire a young gaffer that doesn't know anything. And then you can, he could tell me what to do. <laughs> and I saw that I worked with him on a couple of shows, not as a gaffer. And I saw that's the way he worked, but he offered me this job and I took it, but that's not the kind of work I want to do. And so then he offered me another job 
And he said he was doing a movie at 20th Century Fox and he had to use a Fox gaffer, but would I be the best boy? And I saw that as my opportunity to say no. And I said, no, I'm a gaffer now. And uh, that's all I'm going to do. So I turned him down. And uh, so then in the beginning, I was working with newer DPs that luckily didn't know as much as I did. And uh, so that, and I kept working and working. And then I worked with better ones. The first really good DP I worked with was John Alonzo. And uh, he was a, a guy who had been an actor. And one of the things he told his crew was never ask an actor to do anything to make your job easier. Like, uh, and, you know, absolutely true. They have enough to worry about. And uh, I did six or seven movies with him. Some of them, he was the DP director on a couple of, on two or three TV movies. And John Toll was the operator and I was the gaffer. And he would rehearse with the actors for two or three hours. And the assistant director would get so nervous, you know, what are we going to do? And then when we were ready, John and I were ready as well. The lighting was done. The camera was in position. And each one of those, we finished a day early. So, uh, you know, again, having a good crew to support you is, is what a director needs. Again, you know, collaborating. And when I'm prepping and we're scouting locations or looking at sets, uh, talk with the DP about the look he wants for the movie that he's already talked about with the director. And then while they're setting up and rehearsing, I'm roughing in the lighting. And what's wonderful is sometimes actors just gravitate toward the light. Ha ha. What a surprise. But, um, and so then when we actually get the shot, it doesn't take too long to, to smooth it out and make it work. And, uh, this is something that's kind of a thing with me. I like to have actors look to the side of the camera that the light is on. So that means the fill side is what you, the camera sees the most. And that's what sets the mood. You can either make it very dramatic or, or comedic or whatever. But uh, if you're looking at the side that the key light is on, then it's just boring, you know. You mentioned a few legends there, John Toll, Alonzo. And one of the things I've noticed with your career is you seem to have worked with basically every legend going Spielberg, for Francis Ford Coppola, Ridley Scott. You're just missing George Lucas for that, that trio. Um, is there anything about all of those legends that you've worked with that's maybe a trait between them? Did you learn something from them that you remember? You know, you learn something from everybody. Uh, what I learned from Steven Spielberg is... Um, I did a movie called Night Shift with Ron Howard and Michael Keaton and Henry Winkler. And one of Michael Keaton's lines in that movie was, I'm an idea man. Well, I steal that. And I'm an idea man. And you don't have to take all my ideas, but I want you to consider my ideas. And so with Stephen, I would sometimes make a suggestion to him, maybe not about lighting, but about something else. And his response always was, no, no, no. But then he's a very smart guy. He would think about it. It wouldn't take very long. And he'd say, yeah, no, let's do that. And so what I realized was he was so focused on what he was doing that any suggestion was kind of a distraction that he would kind of wave off. And uh, so not only did I realize that about him, but I realized it about myself. And because I was focused. And so then I changed that attitude. If somebody makes a suggestion to me, I don't always take them, of course, but I always consider them. Uh, 
And sometimes they're really good, something I haven't thought of or hadn't considered. Um, so that's really an important thing I learned from him. Also, um, I think directors are somewhat, I have a, three sons, uh, they're somewhat like kids. You, you set limits for them, but then you have to remind them of those limits. And boy, <laughs> that's a director too. Uh, remember, we're not going to do that. Oh, that's right. Oh, you're right. Uh, and then I also, um, I think OCD is uh, the director's disease, obsessive compulsive disorder, because that means they're looking for perfection. And of course, there's no such thing. And so take 60 was really good. Oh, but 61 maybe would be perfect. Let's go for one more. And uh, you see that all the time. Um, and it's upsetting because it hurts the movie because then all of a sudden now you have no time at all and you got to rush, rush, rush. Just And uh, I was working on a movie and we were finishing up the set and the set dressers were bringing stuff in and we were pre-lighting and the director was walking around and he pointed to the baseboard and he said to the production designer, uh, Gary, that baseboard needs to be a shade lighter. And the production designer said, you really think so? He said, yep. And so I went up to him and I patted him on the back and I said, you saved the movie. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, come on, let's get our priorities straight. Uh, but he would do 30 or 40 takes. And uh, anyway, that's a very good point. You mentioned Spielberg there. What was it like working? You've most notably worked with him on E.T. when he was quite a young director. How did you go about lighting the famous little alien? You know, I was not young, but um, it was early in my career. Um, I had been working on a movie called Cannery Row with Sven Nykvist. And Alan Davio came over to meet me because he was looking for an experienced gaffer because it was his first feature. And it was called This Boy's Life at the time. And I said, sure, that sounds great, you know. And so, again, um, I would rough in the lighting and then Alan and I would discuss it and make a few changes or none. Uh, and we had a limited budget and Stephen had signed the completion bond. And so if things were going kind of slow, he would say, come on, guys, I'm going to lose my furniture, which we knew wasn't true. Um, but it was uh, it, it just worked out really well with kind of realistic lighting, which is what I try to do is make the lighting invisible and uh, not go to the point of saying, hey, look at me. You know, it's uh, it just helps tell the story. Um, but if you look at that movie, so much of the lighting is three quarter backlight, which is my favorite angle. And it was just it was a lot of fun. I'm sure. Speaking of E.T., you've worked on many legendary movies like Braveheart and E.T. that became these huge, famous things historically recognized. Is there ever a feeling on set that this is definitely going to be something like that? Well, not definitely, but that feeling that this could be something great, or does it just feel like another day at work? Well, you know, sometimes when you're working like on E.T., if you had any sense at all, you knew that it was going to be a special movie. It just, there was no question. And then when I was working on Braveheart, it was, of course, very difficult because so much of it was exterior, but um, you knew it was special. And um, so you do. And then other times, um, there was one other movie that I really thought was going to be special, and it wasn't, which was uh, upsetting. It was a movie called For the Boys with uh, 
Mark Rydell was a director and it was Bette Midler and Jimmy Kahn. But it was it was kind of about somebody like Bob Hope who entertained the troops. And so it started with Bette Midler being very old and telling the stories of what that was like. And the old age makeup was so overdone that it took you right out of the story. Um, they just, again, it was almost like, look at me, you know, look what I can do for the makeup artist. And uh, so it wasn't very successful, but it is a good movie. Speaking of misses, were there, I imagine there probably are, any films that became legendary that you turned down? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, you know, luckily, I don't think so. There was one movie that I worked on that I quit. And obviously I was right because it only grossed $400 million. And, and at that time, it's probably like $800 million now because it was quite a while ago. But I, I couldn't get along with the DP or the director. And uh, I realized I had a one jerk limit. So I explained that to the DP and I said, I just, I'll say you find somebody, but I got to go. Working with Whitney Houston was just so wonderful. And we, we actually filmed her singing one of her songs that just brought me to tears while I was watching her sing it. And, uh, and it's a wonderful movie, but it's just uh, ridiculous. I hope you're enjoying Red Carpet Rookies. To keep providing high-quality content from guests like today's, it would be amazing if you could help support the show at redcarpetrookies.com. There you can find Red Carpet Rookies character merch or subscribe to our Patreon page to receive exclusive content like podcast video recordings and monthly Ask Me Anythings. For our top tier patrons, you will also receive access to all filmmaking courses we create, which currently stands as just one class on how to write your first screenplay with Final Draft, but we will be expanding to new areas soon. So hopefully see you over at redcarpetrookies.com. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get back to the show. Speaking of more positive times, you've had an incredible relationship with Steven Soderbergh, who famously does his own cinematography as director. How does that affect the set? And also... What makes your relationship work so well? Well, um, I'd heard he was going to be shooting his own movie and he was interviewing gaffers and key grips. And, but I, then I was really surprised to get a call to go in and meet him. And a producer that I'd worked with had recommended me to him. And so I went in and met him. And we were talking and getting along and we seemed to see things the same way. And, and then uh, he asked me if I had a style which I had never ever thought of before. And I said, cinema minima. And he said, you're my guy. And what that really means to me is that I don't spend money that I don't need to spend. I don't order equipment just in case. I, I think I know what I need and that's what I order. And the reason for that is that sometimes something comes up at the end that you hadn't anticipated and if you keep ordering stuff you don't really need, you're out of money. And then what do you do? Um, but our, the first movie we did was Traffic. And, you know, he wanted it to look like a documentary. And so we would look at locations, not with the thought of where to put the lights, but do we need to use any lights? And in the scene that introduces Michael Douglas to the movie, it's a huge courtroom in Cincinnati, Ohio. We didn't use any lights because it had a whole wall of windows that faced north. So it had nice soft light coming through those windows and that's all we needed. So it really was, and with him, um, 
he he was operating the camera as well as directing the movie and uh so i did the lighting and he set up the camera and when he was ready i was ready and so we would shoot and uh, i really think um he was watching what i was doing and learning and now he doesn't need me anymore but um because he's a he's a wonderful cinematographer but he sees he wants it to look real and uh uh you know he did a movie on an iPhone for goodness sakes. But, um, and his movies now, uh, you know, are wonderful. I would like to work with him again, but, uh, we'll see. Do you think your cinema minima ideal of film comes into its own when you're doing true stories, maybe like behind the candelabra? Generally you want a movie to look like real life, whether it is or not. So I, I really think invisible lighting is the key. If, if the audience is, noticing the costumes that are noticing the music or the lighting they're not noticing the story and so you want them to just become involved with what's going on in front of the screen without drawing attention to yourself but even with music i think that's important it should generate emotion but not say hey listen to this no listen to the people and and watch the people definitely so you're you're living the movie as it were I think to go back to yourself and Steven Soderbergh, I think your favorite moment between the two of you is, for me, is the fountain scene at the end of Ocean's Eleven. It's one of my favorite films. Um, I think I just love the glamour of it and everything. The famous scene at the Bellagio at the end, did you have much of a hand in the magical lighting or was it actually primarily what was already existing there? That, that moment is just wonderful. And of course, they're all lined up looking at the Bellagio and the fountains. And, and so there's a lot of light coming off the fountains, except for the black characters. And so that's who I had. I had one light for each of those, but no other lights. And, uh, and Stephen's direction is, is quite subtle. And so he just told the guys to leave when they felt like leaving. And, and there at the end is Carl Reiner which is perfect. And he's looking and you can read his thoughts. He's thinking to himself, it doesn't get better than this. And then he departs, but it's just a wonderful scene. But it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, there's a, there's a book called film lighting that uh, this guy from Cal arts interviewed a number of cinematographers and gaffers. And he asked them all the same questions. And then what was interesting, he would only use three or four of the answers on each one. But the answers were different, which really tells you there is no right answer. But one of the questions he asks is, how do you like black people? And I said, it's simple, more light. I said, it's like lighting a white wall or a green wall. The green wall takes more light. And I can't believe it today. I'm sitting at home watching a lot of movies that people don't understand that. And so you have a black character in a movie and you can't see him because he's got the same amount of light on his face as the white person he's talking with. Well, that doesn't work. And especially today with HD, when you see the monitor, can't you see there's not enough light on his face uh, or her face? Um, so it still surprises me that People just don't get that. It's simple, more light. It's not the angle, it's not the color, it's the intensity, the amount of it. I love the way that you speak about that magical moment at the end of Ocean's Eleven. And 
I'm slightly scared to ask, but was it the great fun that it looked, the film, to work on? Without a doubt. Absolutely. It was just, and you know, it was great fun. I, I had people ask at the time, oh, that must have been a nightmare with all those actors, you know, the egos. And I said, look, if the number one actor, George Clooney, is not a jerk, nobody else can be either. And that's the key. And he was just, you know, he's a fun guy that at lunch would play basketball with a crew. And, you know, it was just, he's a wonderful guy. And so everybody else had to be that way too. It fits your only one jerk thesis, Jim. And then, and then you're out. <laughs> um, when I was reading about your career, it seems like it was quite a smooth journey from film to film to film to film all the way along. I'd love to know if you did have any struggles along the way or was it as smooth as it seemed? You know, I think, it, I think it was as smooth as it seems. I mean, of course, a defense mechanism for everybody is to only remember the good times. And when you think about that, you go, oh, yeah, that's right. And so what that does is it causes you sometimes to make the same mistake more than once. So you work with somebody and you, it doesn't really work out too well. And you say, I'm never going to do that again. But then six months later, they call you and say, oh, yeah, sure, great. And then as soon as you get there, you go, oh, now I remember. <laughs> so as I look back at my career, it seems very smooth, but I'm sure it wasn't. Um, you know, I, wife and children and support. And um, I didn't take every single movie that was offered, but um, I was inclined to take them because I had to support my family. Um, and I did, it was a time after a night shift when I just did commercials, uh, which paid pretty well at the time. Um, but then I was watching television one morning and I saw uh, a director talking about a movie that he just made and how wonderful it was. And I went, I got to get back to movies. And that's when I went back to working on movies and uh, so glad I did. Um, and now I'm, at a point where I can only, I only take the movies I really want to do. I read the script first. And if I don't want it, if I don't like the script, I don't do the movie. And if I don't like the people involved, I don't do the movie. And, uh, but I've been doing low budget movies lately. And, uh, the reason is that people are there for the same reason to make a good movie, not to get rich. And that's what I like. You know, I, I really wouldn't be inclined to do some hundred million dollar movie with green screen. And uh, to me, that just isn't much of a challenge and it's not something I want to do. The way that you talk about the film industry is very energizing. Um, and it's really great the way you support the youth, for example, me and my listeners, and I've heard you on other podcasts. What is it that keeps you positive about the future of the business? Well, it, it really is uh, the people I work with. Uh, not only the, the people above me, but the crews and everything uh, quite often are so enthusiastic and so happy to be on this, on a movie. And, uh, and I, I work all around the world. And uh, so I work with different crews all the time and uh, I've never had a bad experience working out of Hollywood. Um, I really haven't. Um, you know, you mentioned Braveheart six weeks of that was in Scotland with a British crew. And then we went to Ireland and, uh, had a wonderful crew in Ireland. It's just, it's, it's a lot of fun to meet new people. And the people that are in the movie business are not there 
to make a lot of money. They're there because they love movies and they love making movies. And that's, that's what's the fun part, you know? Um, and I can't imagine working on a job where you were doing the same thing every day over and over. It's just, you know, that's why you start counting days to your retirement is because you, you hate your job. But my job is so different all the time with different places and different people and different stories that it's always, that it's fun. That's why I'm still doing it. That's fantastic. Is there anything that you might like to change about the industry and the way it is at the moment? You know, I really don't think so. I I did a, uh, one more story. Um, I got a call from a production manager and he said, he's doing a movie in Chicago and the DP wanted me to be the gaffer, but he said, this isn't your kind of movie. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, this is low budget. He said, we don't have money for BB lights or Musco lights. I said, I can do low budget. So he said, okay. So he hired me. And on the first scout, we are at this house on Lake Michigan and the scene calls for the drapes to open and revealing Lake Michigan. And uh, so when that, they showed the drapes opening and when that happened, I thought, boy, we should have hard gels on those windows to keep the balance correct. But those are expensive. And he turned to me and he said, hard gels are in the budget. I said, oh. And then we went outside and the director said, we had this night shot. We're going to bring them up to the house and then we're going to drive them. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you're going to have to have a couple of condors and extra men and extra generator. This guy turned to me and he said, two condors, an extra generator, two extra men. They're in the budget. So what I learned from that is that if the person who is preparing the budget knows how to make a movie, then you you got no problems. It's when you get people in that position who don't know anything about making movies, which sometimes happens. And then you say, I need two condors. And they go, well, that's not in the budget. Well, but it should be in the budget. If we're doing a big night shot, you must know we're going to need that. Huh? It's that's what's upsetting. But there's so many smart people now that are running these shows that it's it's a pleasure to work with them. And it's, it's, you know, they're, again, trying to make a good movie for a reasonable amount of money. And because of my reputation and because they know me, if I ask for something, they know I need it. And they almost never say no because they know I wouldn't ask if I didn't need it. That's a fantastic, honest place to be for Honest Gentleman Jim. Now, before we wrap up, I like to do a little quick fire questionnaire, which is my ode to In the Actors Studio. Right. So I'm going to ask you a few little questions, if that's okay. I think you might have answered the first one. So just say whatever comes into your head. Are you ready, Jim? I'm ready. Fantastic. Number one, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Well, as you said, I, I mentioned that my father had told me, learn to look at light. It's something I think about all the time. And I think that's the best advice I've ever had. Fantastic. Number two, do you have a favorite film? Yes. My favorite film to have worked on, and maybe my favorite film, is The Fisher King that I did with Terry Gilliam in New York and Los Angeles. And uh, Roger Pratt, a wonderful British DP. Uh, A year and a half ago, I went to London for a BAFTA tribute to Roger Pratt, which was just so wonderful to see him again. And Terry was there. And so that's that's my favorite film. And the secondary part I asked to that is, which one of your movies would you recommend our listeners watch tonight? Would it be The Fisher King? Well, it would be The Fisher King. There's a a scene in there that takes place at Grand Central Station in New York. And when we scouted, Terry was walking around and he said, you know what would be great 
is, you know, Robin is following Amanda Plummer. And when they get to the main floor, we'll have everybody waltzing around the information booth. And the two producers' jaws dropped and they went, what? But that's what we did. It's, um, we shot at midnight, but the scene was supposed to be at five o'clock in the afternoon. I think I actually read about that in Linda Obst's book. Did she, she was the producer, right? That's right. She was one of the producers whose jaw dropped. It was just, uh, you know, unforgettable. And of course, Robin Williams was so, so wonderful to work with. And, and Jeff Bridges, uh, the most skilled actor I think I've ever worked with. And he takes Wide Lux photos of all the movies he works on and then gives you a book at the end of the movie. And he makes sure that every member of the crew is in one of his photos. So you're in the book. And he talks, you know, talks about what scene the photograph is of. And, and then he has done a couple of hardcover versions of his photos. And he sells those and gives all the money to charity. So it's really nice. That's incredible. Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed every day for an early call time? <laughs> well, the, the challenge and the fact that I'm going to probably encounter something I haven't encountered before that I'm going to have to figure out how to fix or work. Fantastic. Number four, which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours? Uh, director. Number five, if you could work with one person, living or dead, who would it be? And you've worked with most of them. <laughs> well, you know, my the first person that comes to mind is Robin Williams. I did a couple of movies with him and it was just uh, such a pleasure to do. And he, he was really, I rarely use this word, unique. It was really something. That's a fantastic answer. Very touching. Number six, what is a book that everyone should read? Well, there's a wonderful book called Making Movies by Sidney Lumet. I've got it right here. <laughs> oh, do you have that, Mike? <laughs> And, and you can see it's not a very big book, but he covers pre-production, production, and post-production uh, in such a way that it's so clear. His style is a little too much. He, you know, you go on a scout with him and he'll go 40 millimeter lens right here. And then you go back to shoot and that's exactly what you do. That, that to me is a little too planned. I think a director should have a rehearsal with the actors without telling them anything and see what the actor has to offer. because you may be surprised. And uh, I did a movie with David Mamet. And on the very first day of shooting and the first rehearsal, he said, action. And then he said, uh, all right, now, Gene, at this point, you go over to the window. And Gene Hackman turned around and he said, why are we calling this a rehearsal if you're telling me what to do? So the assistant director said, okay, guys, take 10, get some coffee. We're going to have a little meeting, you know. But I think that such a thing is as too planned because actors are and they also, they want to contribute. So if you keep telling them what to do, they feel like puppets and they quit contributing. And so the way to make it, again, a collaboration is to let them show you first. And then after that, they'll do anything you, you ask, but let them show you what they have in mind. Fantastic answer. And my final one is, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank? Well, I would first, of course, thank my father. And then I would thank all of the uh, gaffers and cameramen that I've worked with before becoming a gaffer and, and all the crew that I've worked with, because again, nobody does it by themselves. It's all, a, you know, joint effort. And uh, there'd be so many people to thank. Fantastic. A lovely answer. And that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much to gentleman Gucci, Jim Planet, <laughs> for joining me. <laughs> a fantastic career that we could only dream of and certainly lives up to the name of Gentleman Jim. Thank you so much, Jim, for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. And of course, any support via our Patreon page or merch is amazing. So if you'd like to help, please do head to redcarpetrookies.com and follow the links. If you'd like regular updates of what's going on, you can also follow Red Carpet Rookies on Instagram and Facebook or RC Rookies Pod on Twitter. Have a great day and we'll see you next time.